0: good morning. You will have to bear with me, though it's a smaller room. I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat this morning, so if my voice goes in and out, you will. I will ask you to extend grace uh, this morning. As has already been announced, my name is Gary Goodrich, uh, and it is a privilege to be with you this morning. I serve as an associate pastor at one of your sister churches in Wichita at Heartland Community Church. Uh, some of you I know uh, and have met Uh, previously and some of you I have not yet had the chance to meet and would love to do so after. My wife Whitney and my daughter Zoe uh, are here with me today. Uh, Zoe is one uh, as of last weekend so uh, it's been an amazing journey to have a one-year-old now. Uh, God does some great work that is often painful in the lives of children. Well I want to say thank you for welcoming me this morning Uh, and as Rick is away visiting his family and getting some rest and refreshment in Michigan. I have this distinct honor of opening God's Word uh, with you and praying that God would speak much uh, to us. In particular, you just finished up a series, I believe, for the book of Ruth. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about a topic that everyone loves to talk about, uh, and that is evangelism. And as I talked to Pastor Rick about What it is that he thought I should preach, he said, one of my heart, one of the things that I long for this church and for our churches to know and understand is what it looks like to be an evangelist. What does it mean to really love evangelism? What does it mean to be an evangelist? Which is a great question. I hope many of you don't tune me out and you're still listening to me after you hear that word. So, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. We just read the text a moment ago, so we won't reread the text. But I will provide a little context for us that I think is helpful for us to understand. In this context, the book of Matthew or the Gospel of Matthew is written as a retelling or an eyewitness account. And Matthew's purpose in telling his story and telling the life and the ministry of Jesus is really to help us understand and help his readers understand who this Jesus is and in particular and uniquely how, who this Jesus is in relation to the Old Testament. Matthew's audience would have been a primarily Jewish audience. It would have been an audience who was very familiar with the Old Testament laws and covenants and promises of God and many of them were waiting for a Messiah. And Matthew was. His aim was was convincing the people that Jesus was indeed this Messiah that had come to fulfill the promises to the people of God in the Old Testament. And so Matthew tells us this story of Jesus, and it's going to come up distinctly in this text today, as we will see in just a few moments. But I want to start with a question before we dive into our text. What makes a good evangelist? What do you think makes a good evangelist? What is it that gives us that evangelistic heart? What is behind a heart for evangelism? I know some of you, when you hear the word evangelism, you may have experienced a fear that went through your bones, Like, and, and your temptation was, I think I should leave, uh, or I want to go curl up in the fetal position in the corner somewhere because evangelism is a scary proposition because evangelism means not only I might have to talk to someone who doesn't know Christ but it means I actually have to know what I'm talking about and what I have to say for some of you maybe it's not fear maybe it's shame because you have this perceived expectation that God has placed on you or that you have placed on yourself about what it means to be an evangelist maybe that was you were like me My wife and I were part of a campus ministry in college. And the expectation, though unstated, was that to be a faithful Christian meant that you had an evangelistic conversation every day of the week. And your duty was not done as a Christian. Your head did not hit the pillow until you shared the gospel with someone. And so my wife and I experienced shame when people talked about evangelism. And yet, maybe some of you in here, all together are completely unfamiliar with what evangelism means. What does it mean when Christians and people on television or people that you know or long-winded pastors talk about evangelism? Evangelism, if we could both be on the same page and just summarize it for a minute, evangelism means a proclaiming of good news. It is a telling. It is a... Story about something or someone. And when Christians use the word evangelism, we are often referring to the good news of the gospel and about what our Savior Jesus has come to do. When Christians use the word evangelism, we talk about what God has done in sending Jesus, his son, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life that you and I were supposed to live, to die in our place, condemned and three days later to get out of the grave, to resurrect and defeat death, to ascend to the right hand of the Father and to promise that He is coming back. And that we call you to bow the knee in allegiance to our gracious Savior. So this is what we mean when we talk about evangelism. Several years ago, when I was in college, I already alluded to this. There was a guy who really demonstrated what evangelism was, what it meant. And he not only told me about it, but he demonstrated it. There was a guy that named Mason Leaf who helped disciple me in college. And Mason was what you would think of as a quintessential evangelist. Mason loved to share the gospel. Mason was passionate about the gospel. Mason was convinced that the gospel was the way of life. And... As a man who discipled me, he convinced me of a couple of things that I want to use as a basis to talk about evangelism and developing the heart of an evangelist. You see, Mason convinced me that if you and I are to grow and develop a heart for evangelism, it will mean three things. First, we have to grow in a depth and an appreciation of the gospel. We must grow and plunge deeper into the depths of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And as we grow and plumb the depths of the gospel, inevitably we will be led to become a people who are growing in compassion. And then finally, and most importantly, if you and I are becoming a people of compassion and a people of gospel depth, it will lead us to become a people of passionate prayer. And that is exactly what I want to look at this morning as we walk through this passage. And learn about what and ask God to teach us about the heart of evangelism. So, look with me briefly at verse 27. In verse 27, I want to begin unpacking this context. And up to this point, Jesus has been going throughout the land. He has been going throughout the land and he has been healing and he has been doing some miraculous things, healing the sick and performing miracles. And so this brings us to verse 27, which I think is really important for us to grasp. I think it informs us of who Jesus is. And then I think it helps us understand more fully verses 35 through 38. So we come to verse 27. And Matthew tells us that Jesus is continuing on his journey. He's, he's passed on. And then he says this, he encounters two blind men. And notice what these two blind men do. These two blind men, it, it says they follow him, which I think is miraculous. I think Matthew's intention here is to help us understand these two blind men. They, they, they've heard about this Jesus. They've, they've heard about what he's done. They've heard about who he is. And so they hear him perceivably walking by and almost in a sense of desperation and great faith, they follow him. They go after him. And then to get Jesus' attention, they say to him, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, son of David. And you might be asking, what does this have to do with gospel depth? And what does this have to do with evangelism? And it's a great question. It's a wonderful question. The reality is here, these men refer to Jesus as the Son of David. You remember what we said at the very beginning when we provided the context. Who is Matthew writing to? He's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience concerned with helping us understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And so he, when he says, when he writes that these two men cry out, Son of David, there is a context. There is a context that many of you may be familiar with, but maybe some of you are not. And if you would like, you may turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Second Samuel chapter 7. And I want to draw our attention in particular to verses 22 through 24. And there's this encounter that takes place between God and David. Listen to what Samuel records between God and David. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing great and awesome things By driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself, your people Israel, to be your, whom you redeemed for yourself, excuse me, from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Did you catch that? Did you catch... What was written there that was so powerful, that was so important for us to grasp? Just in case, let me point out a few things. And he says this, and Who is like your people, Israel, one nation on earth, whom God went to do what? To redeem, to be his people. What did he do? Doing for them great and awesome things. Again, He redeemed them for Himself. How did He do it? By redeeming them from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And what did He do? Established Himself a people. His people. Israel would be His people, and He would be their God. For you and I, that means that if we believe the continuing narrative of Scripture... God says the same thing about you because of Christ. If you are here and you believe in Christ, you are brought in to the tree. You have been grafted in, as the Apostle Paul tells us to Romans 9. You are now part of Israel. And so God speaks of you and says, You are my people. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. You are my people and I am... Your God. I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. So when these men call out to Jesus as the son of David, they are very familiar with the promise that takes place in 2 Samuel 7. Many theologians call this the Davidic covenant. It is this promise that God makes to David that God would raise up a Messiah from David's family tree. From David's lineage. And this Messiah would be the eternal king. He would rule forever. This was God's promise to David. And so when these men cry out, Jesus, we believe you to be the son of David, there is a richness in the redemption that God is speaking about. These men believe Jesus to be that very promise Fulfilled. These men believe that Jesus, this healing, miraculous man to be David's greater son. They believe that it is this man, Jesus, through some fashion, he will be the one who will come to finally and fully redeem God's people. I wonder this morning, church, if this is your gospel. I wonder this morning if the gospel that you believe in, the gospel that you profess, speaks volumes about the rescue and redemption of our God. Does your gospel tell you about the overwhelming depths and lengths to which God will go, which God has gone to rescue you? Does your gospel Proclaim that there is a God in heaven who sent His Son and now relates to you and sings over you with delight. Does your gospel make room for that? Or is your gospel more of a set of rules and obligations that you are called to fulfill and live up to? That you are called to live out Is your gospel more about what Jesus has done or more about what you do? Church, I believe with all of my heart that if you and I are to be evangelists, we've got to get the gospel right. We've got to get the gospel right. Because if we don't get the gospel right, we have no good news to share we have no good news to share if the gospel if your gospel and in, in my gospel is about what we do and not what Jesus has done it is really no good news at all it is not good news it is a burden it crushes people and some of you may hear me saying some of these things and you may think that i am not making room for obedience. And I want to be clear, that's not what I'm saying. But if we've got to get the main thing right, we obey and we respond because we are loved, because we are free, because we have been redeemed. We respond with our life and with our worship. We have to grow in gospel depth. That is the first thing we have to get right if we are to have the heart of an evangelist. Second, David, not only do we have to grow in in an understanding of, of the gospel, we must grow in a gospel depth, but Matthew writes and teaches us that if we are to grow in a gospel depth, inevitably what will happen is that you and I will begin to develop hearts of compassion. Jesus himself models this. Look with me at verses... Starting in verse 35, again, Jesus, Matthew tells us that Jesus has gone out, continuing in His, his ministry. He's, he's, he's healed these blind men. He, he's come in contact with a demon, and He, he casts out the demon. And notice the Pharisees uh, are trying to find any way to discredit Him, and so they say, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. It really makes no sense, honestly but this is the best that they have to try to discredit Jesus. And so Matthew tells us he continues to go throughout all these cities, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And with the gospel and his teaching, he's healing every disease and every affliction. And then we come to verse 36. And when he saw the crowds, most likely this is people throughout in the synagogue, in the temple, throughout the town, this is a whole mix of people. Invalids, lame, sick. Probably even some of the Pharisees. And when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. These men... And women whom Jesus comes in contact with, probably some of the very men who are trying to discredit Jesus, who are probably not easy to have compassion on, Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Greek word for compassion carries with it this, this deep internal wrestling, this this almost in the bowels of who I am. It is the very depths of who I am. There's a sense of pity and sadness. There is a grief that Matthew is trying to get across when he uses this word. This is not a dry emotion. This is not some sense of, I feel sorry for them. This is a deep, this is Jesus who sees these people and he is broken over them. He is moved to sadness when he sees the shepherdless sheep. He sees these people and he's broken. He's grieved because they are harassed and helpless. They are shepherdless sheep and they don't even know their own condition. They don't even know they're harassed and helpless. They don't even know that they're blind and imprisoned to sin. They don't get it. And Jesus says, and Jesus is broken. So can I make an observation really quick about this. I've been, in the, I've been a Christian for 10 years. Uh, and I, came, I became a Christian in college. My experience with the church prior to my conversion was not this. My experience with the church and Christians prior to conversion were not Christians who were grieved because I was a harassed and helpless shepherdless sheep. My experience with many Christians in the church was not compassion, but self-righteousness. It was pride. It wasn't pity or sadness for me because I was lost and dying and on the fast track to hell I was a notch on their spiritual belt and I had better get my life together. I had better begin living like a Christian because after all, if I'm not living like a Christian and I'm not making choices like a Christian, then I'm probably about as worth as much as a piece of gum on the bottom of someone's shoe. And you may be saying, like, uh, okay, well, pastor, that's, that's not how I treat lost people and that's fine. Praise God for that. Maybe... You have compassion on the lost people around you. But it's worth noting that often in the church, particularly in conservative church circles, we don't relate to the lost with compassion. We often elevate ourselves up on a pedestal and we begin to judge shepherdless sheep as if they knew how to live is if they knew where to go. And yet the reality, folks, is when you expect non-Christians to act like Christians, you're always going to be disappointed. So Matthew, through the teaching and the example of Jesus, says, listen, church, if you want to develop the heart of evangelism, if you want to have the heart of an evangelist, You've got to confront your own pride. You've got to confront your own tendency to elevate yourself onto a pedestal thinking that you are somehow morally superior. So it begs the question how are we to grow in compassion? I'll give you two things. One, we have to see ourselves correctly. We have to see ourselves correctly. And and what that means for you and I, church, this morning is, is that you and I need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. Maybe that's your proverbial mirror in your bathroom, but more or less maybe into the mirror of God's Word and see what it says about you. Here in the Reformed tradition, and I know your pastor well, and I know he reminds you of this often, we believe in a doctrine called total depravity. We believe in a doctrine called total depravity. And and what this means for you is many of you know this, but in case you don't, Let me remind you, or let me tell you for the first time, total depravity means every part of you, every fiber of your being, every choice you make is somehow influenced by sin. Every bit. And what it also means is that without the grace of God, you are more capable of sin than you begin to even realize. You... Are more capable of sin than you can even realize. We often look at people who commit heinous sins, and we, we look at them and we say, How could they do that? How could you live like that? And church, total depravity teaches us that apart from the grace of God, that could be you. You are more capable of sin than you realize. You are more broken then you dare to dream. And this is the bad news. This is the bad news. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that I'm that broken. I don't want to believe that I'm more capable of sin than I can realize. I sin enough without, without any other help. But apart from the grace of God, I am. And so what this means, when you come into contact with people who sin. It shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't cause disgust or contempt. Instead, it should cause pity and grief and sadness. So you have to see ourselves correctly, and we have to begin to understand and to wrestle with this, that we are more sinful than we dare to dream. And then, if we are to grow in compassion, we have to see others correctly. And in order to do this, we turn back to the beginning of the story. All the way back to the book of Genesis. Listen to what Moses writes in Genesis. This is God speaking, at least we assume God is speaking here in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want to point out a couple things about this text. In the very beginning of the story, from the very onset, we learn that you and I and people outside of the church, people who are resistant to God, people who are resistant to King Jesus, have one thing in common. They're created in the image of God. That is a universal truth. If you have a beating heart, in your chest, and breath in your lungs. If you are a man or a woman, you are created in the image of God. And what that means is that because you are created in the image of God, believer and non-believer, it carries with it a dignity and a respect that we cannot overlook. Do we treat people that way? Do we treat people broken as they may be, marred as they may be, trapped in sin as they may be, do we treat them like those who are created in the image of God? Do we see them as God sees them? Friends, we must see ourselves correctly. We must see others correctly. Yes, all of us under the sun are sinners in need of saving. But Jesus Time and again in the Gospels deals with people with compassion because he sees them as human beings, as image bearers. He deals with them that way. And, and friends, I would tell you, though you are not Jesus, I believe this is his heart for us. So you and I are to grow in compassion by extending the grace of the go- of the gospel that we have been given, and finally, we are to grow in prayer, in passionate prayer. I love this text mostly because I realize that it doesn't call me to apathy, but it does tell me the right priority. So Jesus, when he saw the crowds. He, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus moved with compassion, turns to his disciples and says what? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In an, aggregate, in an agrarian society, Jesus is saying listen, it is harvest season. Plants are ready. They are ready to be harvested. They are ripe for the harvest. But we don't have enough workers. We don't have enough people to go into the fields to do the work that needs to be done. There are many people ready to be told about the gospel. Therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord. Not pray nonchalantly, not pray ambivalently, but pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. To send laborers into his harvest. So Matthew tells us very specifically Jesus, what Jesus said about what we are to pray for, but what else? should we be praying for in regards to evangelism? I love what Jerem Bars, one of my former professors, says in his book, The Heart of Evangelism. He says, We pray first for the work of the Spirit in the hearts and minds of those around us. We know that He can reach the parts of them, the inner workings of their minds and hearts that we cannot reach. He can soften the hard heart he can bend the stubborn will, he can open the closed mind, he can challenge the long-held prejudices, and he can heal the painful memories that are inaccessible to us. Jerem captures, I think, very succinctly, what God, why we pray. because God can do what we cannot. You and I don't know the full stories and experiences and the biases and the hard places of the human heart. You and I don't perfectly know how the gospel will meet a person's heart, but God does. And so we pray. And we pray as well because we know that it is God who works. It is God who opens the eyes of the blind. It is God who softens the hard heart. And so we pray. Well, what else are we to pray for? I want to give you just a few things that I think are important that you can pray for very specifically in regards to evangelism. One, pray for opportunities and open doors. Pray for opportunities and open doors. Pray that, you may, that, that God may give you an opportunity to speak the gospel to people. One of the things that I was convinced to pray long ago, and I don't perfectly do this, but I pray this often. God, bring people across my path who need to know about Jesus. Bring people into my life who need to know the gospel. We pray that God would give us opportunities to speak the words of life to people who are dying. Pray for opportunities. And oftentimes, if you pray this prayer, this is going to happen in the context of relationships. Co-workers, friends, family members, neighbors. This is where it's going to happen. It's, it's probably not going to happen uh, with your cashier at, at Dylan's. It's probably not going to happen with your barista at Starbucks, though it may And you should be willing and ready for that if God so chooses to bring you that opportunity. But you pray that God would give you an opportunity. And then you watch when God opens that door for you. So you pray for opportunity. Second, pray for courage. Pray for courage. I think most of us in here, when we're being honest, if, if we were honest about sharing the gospel, there is a fear that is attached to that. Maybe for some of you who are zealous for evangelism in here, uh, and, and praise God if some of you are that, maybe you say, you know, really I'm not fearful, but I do get a little bit of a butterfly. I get butterflies in my stomach. Now, the reality is, most of us, most of the church, most Christians... Have fear. That's why most statistics will say uh, that 2-3% to of Christians share their faith on a regular basis. It's not a lot. Most of them are fearful and we can can press into that in a different day of why we're afraid and, and it is because we give too much power and we fear men more than we fear God and we have to recognize that as sin and we have to repent of that. But nonetheless, we are are fearful. We lack courage. And so we pray, God, give me courage. Give me boldness. Give me the boldness to speak when the time comes. Again, I love what Jerem Barr says. It does not help anyone to pretend that you are always a bold and ready witness. And such pretense certainly does not please God. So pray. Come before your Father in heaven with weakness, asking Him to do a work in you that you cannot do by yourself. So third, pray for clarity. This is pretty straightforward. When the time comes, pray that God would give you the words to speak. Jesus captures this in John 12 when He says this, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. He commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father told me to say. Now obviously you and I aren't Jesus. But the reality is through the work of the Holy Spirit. God empowers you and enables you and helps you to know what to say when the time comes. But pray for that. Pray that you would know what to speak and how to speak it. And finally, in this text pray for more workers into the field. Pray for more workers. You and I are called to pray for laborers to go out into the harvest, for the mobilization of new workers to go out into the world. But let's be clear. When Jesus speaks this, he's not talking about the Western context in which we, we send missionaries into foreign lands, though we pray for that. We pray that God would raise up missionaries to go into foreign lands, but part of what we pray for as well is that God would raise ambassadors up right here. That God would raise up laborers for the harvest in Andover, in Wichita, in Kansas, and continuing outward. We pray that God would raise up ambassadors for the gospel right here in this room. Right here. So we pray for gospel workers in the field. But here's the thing. Let me give you a little bit of a warning. When you pray this prayer that God loves to answer, I think God will begin to convince you, and many of you know what I'm going to say, you're part of the solution so when God calls you to pray that more workers would be raised up in the harvest fields be prepared for God to begin working in your heart and say you go you speak you share God will call you so I want to give you a few implications to walk away with God is inviting you today, church, to be a receiver of His grace. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, please do not leave here without talking to someone about Jesus, about the hope and the life that is found in Him. If you do know Christ, please continue to plumb the depths of the gospel. It is rich. It is inexhaustible. It is truly good news. Get to know the gospel and get to know your Savior. So God is inviting you to be a receiver of His grace. Second, God is inviting you to be a carrier of His grace. If you know this gospel, do not keep it to yourself. Do not keep it to yourself. Now, I'm not saying that God is going to call you to be the next street evangelist or corner preacher. He may. But God may simply call you to find somebody that you do not know, your neighbor or your coworker, and simply say, hello. It may start with hello. It may take you weeks and months to get to the gospel. But God is calling you to be a carrier of his grace through word and deed to show compassion, to get to know the stories and the lives of people so that you can preach the gospel to their heart. And God is inviting you to go deeper with Him in prayer. To be on your knees praying and crying out to God to do a work that only He can do to wrestle with God in prayer, to plead with our God in prayer, that he might open the eyes of the blind, that he might set the captives free, that he might redeem people today who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's inviting you to get to know him in prayer. So church, my prayer for us, for your body and for my Church and for all the churches in Wichita and in our presbytery, is that we might be believers gripped by the gospel, that this might move us to live a life of compassion, and that we might be people who pray earnestly that God would send workers into the harvest field. And I pray that God would raise some of you up and compel you today to become a part of the harvest, to become a worker in the field. This is my prayer for you, church. This is my prayer for us. And I pray God would answer in his grace in his mercy for his glory and good. So the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How is God calling you to respond? How do you need to change? Let's take a few moments to to pray and to meditate on the words that were spoken. And I'll close us out in prayer. Father in heaven, God, we acknowledge that we are weak and feeble and frail, and we acknowledge that there is much work to be done. There are many who don't know the hope of the gospel. So Father, would you do a work in us through your word and through your spirit, change us, shape us, and break our hearts for a lost and dying world that we may love well, speak the words of life with clarity and conviction, and that the gospel may bear much fruit here in Andover and in Wichita and all across the world. So, Father, may these words that were spoken help us see the gospel more clearly and our role to respond. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.